Evan, welcome. How are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Great. So for people that might not know Evan, and I guess this is a lot because you're not very active in the crypto community, right? You've written some stuff in it, but not really your your area of expertise. Evan has written a great book, The Mastermind, about one very particular character that might or might not be Satoshi Nakamoto. So stay tuned to find out if he really is. How are you doing, Evan? How well can you tell us about your book before we get started? Uh, well, the book, so the book came out in 2019. Um, it's called The Mastermind. And it's, it's, the book is about uh, this guy named Paul Calder LaRue, who's a South African uh, in Zimbabwe, who's born in Zimbabwe, raised partly in South Africa, who basically, I think he might be the biggest cyber criminal of all time. Uh, like volume wise, certainly in terms of ambition, I think um, he built an entire prescription drug uh, empire online from about 2004 to about 2012. He was making hundreds of millions of dollars. He was making in 2008, he was making roughly what Facebook was making in terms of re revenues. Um, but he also branched out into uh, every, pretty much every conceivable uh, area of crime uh, that seemed lucrative, including regular nar narcotics trafficking, including uh, a lot of strange gold buying and smuggling, illegal timber operations. Um, and then a lot of that ended up spiraling into uh, violence when he had to protect his operations. So he had, essentially he built his own international cartel out of the Philippines where he was living. Uh, and the book is kind of about his rise. And then, as you might imagine, his eventual fall. Everything that... Everything starts with this sentence, the biggest, possibly the biggest cyber criminal that has ever existed. So what, uh, what justifies this? Well, I think in terms of, at one point I did go and look at, you know, everybody who would be on that list. I mean, he made, it's hard to tell how much people make. So in right. terms of- Especially if they're criminals. Yeah. So, you know, they never get all the assets and, and also- the, the authorities often inflate it. So you'll get these sort of, it's the biggest cyber criminal arrest in history. The FBI will say that. And then, you know, they'll say it's a it's hundred million dollars or it's 200 million. Then suddenly it's a billion. You know, they're just throwing around numbers. They're just guessing, not guessing, but uh, educated guessing. Um, but he was making, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, which I think on a regular basis, which I think is hard to match with any other uh, you know, attempt. I think like Ross Ulbricht was accused of uh, significantly making significantly less money than than LaRue. So it's just a little bit of a shorthand. I mean, I think partly what makes him interesting is is outside of the cyber crime realm. So, you know, the fact that he was involved in things online, uh, that was his big business. But the idea that he then parlayed that into these sort of more traditional uh, hardcore criminal activities where he's shipping tons of cocaine around the world and tons of methamphetamine that he's buying out of North Korea and hiring mercenaries. Like that part was kind of what, what drew me in as much as his sort of online, uh, online business. And whenever, when I was reading your book and I got hooked on all of these by the, by the Wired article you wrote about Paul Leroux's being possibly the mastermind behind Bitcoin as well. Uh, the first thing that drew me in, or it's one of these stories that you cannot, you can tell it's real because it would be too convoluted to make this up, right? <laughs> like this dude was into everything, doing all sorts of things. And it all started with the infamous, or basically they were 
one of the earliest internet memes, the infamous Viagra <laughs> spam emails, right? Back in the day, it was sort of a joke that every time you would get a spam email, it would be someone trying to sell you Viagra. Yeah, he kind of came out of that and, and, and sort of translated that into a business to sell uh, prescription pills, but mostly painkillers. So he was selling painkillers into the US. He's actually, I mean, I could go on, on about it forever and I won't go too far in the details, but he, I mean, his, his scheme was brilliant. He was, what he was doing was selling painkillers to American customers using American doctors and American pharmacists that he'd recruited online so that they were actually writing prescriptions and supplying drugs. He just handled all the infrastructure, the online infrastructure. And so he was making just insane amounts of money selling, you know, 50 million doses of painkillers a year. And this is like as the sort of opioid epidemic is ramping up. And, you know, at one point I calculated he was, sell he was selling like something like a quarter of what like, you know, Rite Aid or a big pharmacy was selling in terms of like painkillers, which is an extraordinary amount to, for one guy and his, his business to be, to be selling. So yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of what what hooked me into it, um, but then the the it it does uh, relate to the Satoshi part of it because as I started reporting it, I spent five years reporting it. I would come across these stories. People would tell me something about him that just seemed completely unbelievable. Like one of the things early on was that he was making missile technology for Iran and he was selling it to the government of Iran. And when someone first told me that, I I just thought they were making it up because people made up all kinds of stories about him, and it turned out to be true. Not only was it true, that was one of the things he was convicted for eventually was he was, he had sold explosives technology to the government of Iran. He was making missile technology to help them build missiles. And there were so many examples of that, that when it came to Satoshi, it's one of those things where people would suggest it. And I would say, eh, come on. And then I, I early on, I sort of said like, I wonder if he's Satoshi, but you couldn't rule anything out, you know, with Paul LaRue, like anything seemed possible. So that's what eventually kind of led me down the, a little bit down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out if there was any evidence. When you're, yeah, if you want, let's backtrack a big, big, a bit because this is one of the most interesting thing to me. How did you get so hooked on spending five years on reporting on this criminal? What were the, what was your life like back then? What was happening? <laughs> so you got so deep into this. Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because when I started, I was like, uh, I'd just gotten married basically. And then like by the end, when the book came out, I had like two toddler, I had two children, you know, like my whole life uh, changed over the score, scope of writing the book. But I got interested in it because initially the only thing that was in the news, the only uh, little blip about Paul LaRue was one of his henchmen had been arrested. This guy named Joseph Hunter, whose nickname is Rambo. So he was arrested for trying to kill a DEA agent in uh, Liberia. It's, it's a complicated story, but basically it was a sting operation. And, and the idea that there was this ex-US military guy running around the world being hired as a hitman to kill DE agents, like even that, that was enough of a story for me. So I do a lot of crime stories for magazines. And so that instantly I knew there's got to be a story there. And right. I didn't even know that he had actually worked for Paul LaRue. Like the whole, the real story was that Paul LaRue had hired Joseph Hunter and Joseph Hunter was the head of Paul LaRue's kill team that he used to enforce uh, debts and people who owed him money and people who made him mad. And so over the years, like little drips of information would come out. And then I started 
going and reporting, going to the Philippines where they were based. And I would talk to some of the mercenaries who worked for the organization or some of the people who had run the pill operation, the online part of it. And so it was sort of, it took so long in part because it's not something that a lot of people want to talk about, whether they were in the criminal organization or their law enforcement. It was an open case. He had not yet been sentenced and they were, pro they were trying to track down people and prosecute them. So it was sort of a, a very, very long process of me going to the Philippines for two weeks and trying to track down one person and then going to Hong Kong and trying to track down one person. So there was just a lot of like slow, slow unraveling of the reporting for the story. And meanwhile, you were reporting on crime stories. You were just doing your regular job as a journalist, trying to build up this, this big case. Yeah, I was, I was actually working as an editor at that time. So I was running a magazine. Um, so this was kind of like my side. This was like my fun uh, thing I did at night for, for the first year or year and a half uh, that I would just sort of stay up late and try to find connections. Because LaRue had, had dozens and dozens of sort of shell companies all over the world. So you could spend endless amounts of time just looking up in a Hong Kong database or a, or a UK database, some company, and try to figure out how is it linked to this other company and what's he doing with it. And so I, I would just spend my nights trying to like piece it all together. And then eventually I, I quit my job and I, I started doing this full time. So I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you know this better than me, but I think Mexico, where I'm from, is actually the leading uh, country when it comes to journalist deaths, when it comes to just drug cartels putting out journalists because they're looking into, well, too much into their stuff. Did you... Did you ever get too close or did you ever get a close call when you were looking into LaRue? Like maybe you should stay out of this. I never, I never experienced what I, what I thought was an actual close call in the end. Okay. There was, I had a lot of uncertainty. You, know, you just don't know until you are sitting in front of someone what they're really about. So I would contact people, uh, you know, let's say a, a British mercenary who had worked for LaRue who was living in the Philippines. And I, he would say, yeah, okay, yeah, you can come interview me, but you don't really know what you're going to get. And you don't know, is this guy still working for LaRue? Is he, is he on to me? Is he, is he going to intimidate me? And I had people where I showed up and, you know, they said, oh, I don't want to kill you. If I'd want to kill you, you would be dead already. Like I would have followed you from the airport if I wanted to kill you. It cost right. me to pay someone to kill you. So it, in the end, it always... Whatever gambles I took obviously ended up working out, but I did try to be careful. There were some cases where there were people I'd only meet in public places, which isn't a 100% guarantee, but there, just a, there were some safety precautions that I took. And then there were some times where I just, I just had a hunch that it was going to be okay, and I kind of went for it, and then I, I breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief afterwards. But it, it turned out that all these people want to kill each other. And I'm, I'm kind of the least of their problems in some ways. A lot of them wanted to tell their story because they'd done amazing things. They'd done absolutely insane, amazing things and they couldn't tell anyone about them. So a lot of them really opened up when I actually sat down with them. Well, that's one of the things and you report on crime stories most know this. Um, that's one of the things that they always say, right? In the end of the day, the serial killer wants to get caught because they want to get the recognition they want to get the fame and that goes i guess as well for drug cartel leaders for these type of cyber criminals and if you want we can i think we've built enough of a background to go into the satoshi thing you believe or at least you have said that 
if you have to bet on one particular character to be Satoshi Nakamoto, you would be betting on Paul Leroux. And we would love to hear why. <laughs> well, I, I have to be, I feel like I, I knew this because I, I'm, as you said at the beginning, I'm not, I'm not super into the crypto world. Like my writing has touched on a little bit. Like I'm, I'm aware enough as a person who uh, is, reads about and writes about tech. And I worked for Wired Magazine for a long time, but I've never actually covered it. And I'm not sort of like amidst that world. But one thing I do know from my friends who are is to be very careful with how I, how I uh, describe my feelings about this. Because yeah, let's build the disclaimers. <laughs> what, what I really think, and, and what I, I wrote a, an article in Wired Magazine about it, um, is that of the people, all these people have been floated, you know, as possible Satoshi. And if yeah. you look at them and you look at Paul LaRue, I feel like Paul LaRue is the strongest candidate. Now, a couple of caveats to that. One is that there's actually been a, a really interesting candidate that's come out since I wrote that. Um, who's this, uh, what's his name? Oh, Len, Len Sassaman, who someone wrote like an actually kind of brilliant um, medium post about how it could be this guy um, who sadly committed suicide. So there's even been candidates since then. But my argument was and is that if you look at the people who have been proposed, I think Paul is actually like pretty strong candidate. The First of all, uh, Evan, sorry to interrupt. Uh, it's yeah. impossible not to interrupt <laughs> in, in Zoom, but can you spell out this guy's name for anyone that would like to look him up? Oh, which one? The new one? Yeah. The new one is um, uh, Len, L-E-N, Sassaman, S-A-S-S-A-M-A-N. And there's a Medium post by a guy named, it's just Evan H is what it says on here. I don't know if he's truly anonymous or people know who that is, but um, it's a very, very interesting, it came out uh, a couple months ago, February. Um, and it's really similar to what I wrote about Paul LaRue. It's like trying to piece together a narrative, but it also lacks evidence. And this is where, this is where my other caveat comes, which is that I think if you compare Paul LaRue to the entire universe of candidates, it's probably not him. Like it's probably someone that we don't, we don't know, we don't think of. And so it's very easy to say, if you look at such and such a person who's been proposed, I think Paul LaRue is, fits better, but there's no actual definitive direct evidence that shows it. It's all circumstantial, it's all narrative. And so you're just fitting a story to something you wanna believe. And that's part of what I was writing about was you know, how we can convince ourselves. And I was extremely convinced at one point that it was definitely him, but then I sort of took a step back uh, and looked at the evidence and realized the evidence is really, it's a story. It's like right. a lot of coincidences. But that said, they're pretty basic coincidences. I mean, I mean, when, I, when we're looking at mysteries, you have to think that, like you said, you were trying to feed a narrative to the story, right? Or the story to a narrative. Because if there was evidence, if there was solid evidence, we wouldn't even be talking about this, right? We would know. But that said, the case you lay out is pretty convincing. And as you say in your Wired article, when you were building out the pro list, the evidence those seem to stack up in favor of LaRue. Yeah. And I think it sort of starts with, you know, LaRue's background, which is, it's just extremely compatible with what we know about Satoshi and what we know about what went into building the original Bitcoin. Because... A thing that LaRue had done in his uh, 20s, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, was he had built his own encryption software. It was disk encryption software. It was called Encryption for the Masses. 
and it was an open source software. He built it entirely himself, just worked by himself for several years and then went online and released it to the world and announced it on a message board and said, hey, I've made this thing. Now, that's very similar to the idea of Satoshi building most of the elements of the blockchain and, you know, fusing these different ideas and then sort of showing up and saying in 2008 or yeah, 2008 saying, Hey, here's this thing that I've built. And then you sort of start from there. And then you look at the experience that Paul LaRue had. He was a C plus plus coder. He's people who worked with him, you know, in the legitimate world before he became a criminal said he was, you know, the most talented they'd ever seen. He's got this encryption experience. He also uh, wrote about his sort of anti-banking and anti-government views, which align very closely with some of the posts that later came out, uh, Satoshi's posts. Um, he also worked for banks. So when, before LaRue went to the illegitimate side, he had worked for banks, building payment systems for banks. That was his job as a contract coder. So experience with the currency system, like there's just all of these things that kind of fit together in terms of his story and the way it maps onto Satoshi's story. And then I think one of the biggest ones is that I think anyone who's interested in this, and I do think it is very interesting, is one of the richest people in the world if they're still alive. Like I can't imagine why someone wouldn't be interested in this, but you hear people say like, ah, uh, who cares? It doesn't matter who Satoshi is anymore, but it's just inherently fascinating mystery. It still is. And I think one of the questions you have to answer is why haven't any of the coins moved? Like why hasn't any of the money been spent? And there are two really obvious answers. And one of them is that the person is dead right. and the other is that the person is in prison and Paul Aru fills the second one. So I think the fact that he's incapacitated and he can't do anything with the money is a kind of point in his favor as it is to someone who's no longer alive. Because I think it's someone could have the fortitude to never spend that money, but I think that's a, that's one of the things that makes it such an incredible mystery. So there's all these, and then there's a lot of little things. So I kind of go through, I don't know how many of them you want to go through, but there's just all these little connections. And if you start looking at them, you can definitely convince yourself that it's him. Actually, that was kind of what sparked our, that what started the snowball that ended up with us having this conversation because someone was talking about Satoshi in, this, in my Cyprus cryptocurrency group and they were saying, well, it doesn't matter who this is and everything that you just said. And it's a bit of the more condescending type of things people used to say, right? Like <laughs> we're all in here for the tech. We don't care about the money. These guys must be on the top of the Forbes list. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> of course it matters who this guy is. And um, and then someone said like, okay, yeah, but he's probably dead or in prison, I added, and no one had ever even considered the in prison part. I read your article like a long, long time ago, and I'm like, well, this is the, this guy built a great case on why this guy might actually be in jail and be like this super famous criminal, and no one had ever heard of that. So I'm like, okay, I need to get this guy on the podcast to talk about it because it's just such a great story. And actually, there is a character that everyone in crypto kind of knows about, uh, they call him fake Toshi. <laughs> and we're talking about, of course, Craig Wright, the creator of the now infamous Bitcoin Satoshi's vision and previously related to Bitcoin Cash. And 
like you said, this guy has proclaimed his Satoshi in all of matter of PR ways. He's done all these stunts, but he's never been able to move the actual coins, which would be the definitive proof. And these billions of dollars are just sitting there. And I know you're smiling because there's a way that Craig Wright is implicated in this story. So cue to you. This is where it, it gets really weird and fun, but, but, but very strange. So yeah, Craig Wright, I mean, I spent a long time in Craig Wright's uh, lawsuit. So he, you know, he's being sued by um, Dave Clayman's brother. So Dave Clayman was like his business partner uh, and he died. Dave, I think it's Dave. Uh, it's been a while in these names, but, um, but I know the brother's name is Ira. So they're in this, in this huge lawsuit in Florida uh represented by big big top law firms and craig wright's being sued basically for half of his bitcoin like half of bitcoin that he claims to have as being satoshi or being someone who was very early on in bitcoin and as you say there's all these issues uh he can't produce the keys it's just the whole thing is like a tremendous mess like he's been caught lying in court and the judge has uh you know pointed that out and the it's just like a, a, a tremendous, like it's, it's impossible to untangle this thing, no matter how much time you spend on it. I think it's going to trial maybe this summer. It's supposed to finally. In any case, somewhere in that case, there was a filing. And in the filing, there was a footnote. And the footnote was supposed to be redacted, but they did not redact the full footnote. I, and, I wanted to ask you this since I read the article the first time <laughs> years ago. Was this the only thing that hadn't been redacted is this the only place where they screwed up the redacting or there were other things it's the only place that i know of um it could be that they they screwed up the redacting and the other things were just not anything that anyone sort of caught a hold of or was meaningful okay uh, to, um but it's not even it, the only thing that's kind of like i can't remember exactly what it says but like paul larue's name is there so so we know that it's about paul larue I had one source that said it's sort of hinted to me that it's related to Craig Wright somehow helping catch Paul LaRue. But it doesn't really make sense. Um, right. But that is what fueled uh, a lot of the speculation, original speculation about Paul LaRue being Satoshi or being involved in this in some way because his name just pops up in this lawsuit. So then I had already known that, so Craig Wright is involved with Calvin Ayer they have this whole business and alternate Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. And Calvin Ayer, I, had, I have two sources that have told me that he and LaRue knew each other in the Philippines in like 2008 to 2011. So there's something strange going on here. Like Paul LaRue crossed paths with Calvin Ayer. Calvin Ayer denies this. He says he's never heard of him. I have two sources that say otherwise. Uh, and then Calvin Ayer and Craig Wright get hooked up. And then Craig Wright's claim to be Satoshi and like, there's no, that it doesn't add up to anything, but it's very, very mysterious. What is going on here? Like why did this, why did, why did these three people sort of triangulate around this particular issue? So, so you have, you have Craig Wright, who's a mesh in a very big lawsuit in Florida. You have a footnote that references Paul LaRue. I have two sources who have indicated to me that Paul LaRue and Calvin Ayer, the person who was backing Craig Wright, had business interactions in 
Manila in 2008 to 2011. Uh, so you have these connections. It's not at all clear what they add up to, but it is all a very big coincidence, if nothing else. Like there's uh, a chance that it's just a coincidence, but it's certainly, especially with all the strangeness around Craig Wright, it just tends to fuel, uh, at least in my mind, just like you're just craving some narrative that actually explains what the hell is going on here because it doesn't really make any sense. And if you had to, I mean, if you have to make up something or if you had to to point your finger somewhere, what would you say the relation between Cray Wright and Pulleroo actually is? I mean, if I, if I had to, if I'm making it up, Yeah, I would write this, but let's say I'm just making it up for your purposes. I feel like the theory that you would come up with is that uh, Paul LaRue and Calvin Era had some kind of relationship in Manila. They knew each other somehow. And, and let's say, let's postulate that, that Paul is involved in creating Bitcoin. So he is Satoshi in some way. Right. Then Craig Wright comes into the mix. He's introduced to Calvin Era in the Philippines around the same time. Somehow they've got something going together around Bitcoin. They're all, who knows what it is exactly. Maybe uh, they're all mining coins or I don't know what's going on, but we're just making up a story here. And then Paul LaRue gets arrested. Uh, he actually leaves the Philippines in end of 2011. He gets arrested in 2012. He's brought to the United States. He's like out of the scene, but no one knows that he's out of the scene. No one knows that he's been arrested until much later. And so much later, But it's revealed that he's actually in custody in the U.S. Now, maybe Craig Wright realizes that uh, Satoshi is uh, incapacitated. So Satoshi can't speak for himself anymore. And so now is a good time if you know a lot about how Bitcoin was created, and maybe even if you know who Satoshi is, to say that you're Satoshi. Because... The real Satoshi's not going to come out and uh, move the coins because he can't. So I think that's the theory, the best I can articulate it. Again, like what I was always looking for was some direct evidence, some right. you know, shell company that maybe both their names were on or, you know, some person who would tell me, oh, yes, I, they talked about this. You know, all of the quote unquote evidence I have is, again, it's like, It's narrative evidence. It's stories that fit together. It's backgrounds that make sense, but it's not, it's not evidence. And I, part of me sort of thought, well, if I didn't find it, I don't know, is it there? Like, I'm not saying I'm the best reporter in the world, but I spent a long time on this thing and I never found anything actually connecting it up. I never found Paul LaRue connected to the email that Satoshi uses or anything like that. So that's the part of me that says like, mm, this is all smoke and no fire. So there is a, there are a couple of things that really line up and really make this case solid. But before going into them, I would want to ask you, because I noticed last night I was rereading your article in Wire just to have like freshen up my mind a bit about all of this. And in there you mentioned that you've been down the Satoshi rabbit hole before. Is there any previous investigations that you've made in order to try and learn who Satoshi is, or is this just something that came to you when you were researching LaRue? Yeah, that just came, came from LaRue. So it originally it was my idea because when I was started for, I first started researching the book, I actually said to LaRue's cousin, I found that the message that I had sent him way back in like 2016 saying, 
here's my real secret theory. LaRue is actually Satoshi. And it was more like, this would be the best book ever. Like if I also could prove that he was Satoshi. Right, like, if you outed him. Yeah, the book would be everything. It would have absolutely everything. And so, but when I, I did look into it at the time, I spent a good amount of time on it and I could not come up with anything. Like I just couldn't find anything. And then when this Craig Wright lawsuit issue came out and the footnote came out, then I said, I had a lot of people coming at me saying, do you think this is true? This, do you think this is true? And I sort of thought, well, if this turns out to be true and I haven't addressed it, then I'm going to feel like a real fool. So at the very least, I'm going to sit down, spend a few weeks and try to figure out what do I know and what right. can I... And so, that, and also why, because your name has pretty much become permanently associated with this criminal forever, right? Like you must be the number one expert in the world in Poleru. Right. So if I don't know and someone else figures it out, it would be really embarrassing. <laughs> right. well, that's how you build science, right? <laughs> Upon the failures of others. That's <laughs> true. It's true. And so there are a couple of things that sort of makes sense. Um, one of them is the fake passport, right? There is, um, well, this character, LaRue, is very well known for tracing back all his steps, making sure that everything is her type, carrying around fake passports with his name and, or with other names and with other identities and traveling around and even getting diplomatic status to fly around unnoticed and one of them is a congolese passport am i right that's right yeah so he gets this fake name he gets this fake name which might or might not be a congolese name solochi solochi yeah and that was one of the 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 pieces of evidence that i dismissed the first time i looked into it because when I, I actually found the person who got him that passport. So that, this person strapped like tens of thousands of dollars in cash to their body and went into the Democratic Republic of Congo, bribed an official, got this diplomatic passport. And they, that person told me that they picked the name. The person that he bribed picked the name. Okay. So I thought, oh, okay, well, then it's just random. Like they picked the name. But the thing that I failed to do was look at the dates because the, or really ask him, when exactly did you get the passport? Because as it turns out, when he got the passport was like August of 2008. And it was before there was any Satoshi thing being public. So there's a way in which it could work in the reverse direction, which is LaRue didn't make it up, but he got this treasured passport, diplomatic passport that he loved. He was so proud of having a diplomatic passport and it had this name Solochi on it. And he was trying to come up with a pseudonym. He changed it to Satoshi. It sounded Japanese. So he added, you know, Nakamoto on the end. So I think that's, that's the theory. But certainly it is weirdly close. Uh, when you say it out loud, it just, it sounds like the same. Well, if you say Solochi Satoshi, like Satoshi's Matochi, right? <laughs> so would you, how close did you get to the man himself ever? Did, did you ever get to visit him in prison did you ever get get to see like videotapes or of him do you have a sense of how his personality is how he carries himself around uh i do although it is, it is a bit limited i could never interview him so partly because for most of the book he was held in secrecy i mean he wasn't even supposed to be known that he was in custody uh and then when it was known he was still held in a restricted facility his lawyer 
would never let me speak to him. I don't even think his lawyer even passed on any messages, any of his lawyers uh, over the years. So I was never able to actually go interview him in prison. He did testify uh, a lot. So he testified at length in trials of his henchmen uh, when they were convicted of murder. And so I got a pretty good sense of him in those, uh, in those when he was on the witness stand for hours and hours. And then I also did have some videos of him from the sting operation where he's just doing business. He's arranging drug deals and things like that. So I had that. And then I had a lot of people that interacted with him. I mean, dozens and dozens of people that interacted with him. So that was kind of the combination of things uh, is what I used to like put together the portrait of him. All right. And yeah, you, you can imagine the, him like being sort of proud of having this diplomatic passport with a fake name but his picture from a country that he's not obviously from. <laughs> and he then goes on and to build this fake persona, Satoshi Nakamoto online. Uh, And actually, a, a fun thing is that Satoshi has actually been known to highlight the encryption used by the products that Paul Leroux created and use similar phrases such as encryption for the masses, etc. And that sort of builds this character that when you look back at it, it makes a lot of sense. Why would someone not move such a fortune? But when you look at the Bitcoin prices, when he was locked up and the amount of bitcoin that he had well satoshi has it's just a very a very small amount compared to the fortune that polaru had amassed already right it, it amounts something to what like 12 million yeah at the time i think he could have at the, if you just look at the price you know what he supposedly had when at the time he was arrested was 12 million dollars but also remember there was no way to get it out i mean you couldn't just cash in for 12 million dollars like That was still in the time when it was sort of like a big deal when, uh, what's his name, bought the pizza. And like, you know, right. it, it was not like you could just go to an exchange. I don't remember how exactly the time frame of like Mt. Gox and how this all overlaps with that. But it was not so simple to get millions of dollars out, I don't believe. So I think it's partly that it wasn't that much money for him. Uh, and also he may not have been able to get it out uh, at the time. So I think under the theory that it's him, it sort of makes sense that he didn't touch it at that point and now he can't. And um, well, I'm going to steer this towards the possibly the biggest piece of evidence that, or the most convincing part of the case, which is the WikiLeaks thing. And if anyone has, uh, well, if people that listen to this have seen all the record of Satoshi's messages in public boards, he was pretty bothered by the fact that WikiLeaks started taking payments in Bitcoin, right? Well, uh, the donations. Yeah, he was bothered by that. And he was sort of like his, I don't remember the exact quote, but paraphrasing, you know, this is going to bring a storm. Like this is going to bring heat down on Bitcoin, basically. Like we don't need people like this using it, I think was the, was the theory. Um, and then there was also... Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy that he turned it over to. And then he kind of like severed ties with him, which happened right after that guy talked about. Uh, was that Hal Finney? It wasn't Hal Finney. It was, um, I can look it up. Hold on. I should know this. Okay. <laughs> I, I should have that information at hand. But yeah, like I think he, it was something like someone was hitting on the, hitting on the hornet's nest and they were going to 
Yeah, yeah, the hornet's nest. That's what it was. Yeah, and then and then someone gave a talk at the CIA, and that's when he totally disappeared. Um, which you could imagine, like, if it was Larue. First of all, Larue would have had a specific beef with WikiLeaks because one of the things that was in the WikiLeaks dumps was something about one of Paul Larue's arms deals. Like one of his arms deals, there was information about it in the WikiLeaks dump, um, which I don't think I even put in that article. It's sort of too convoluted to explain, but I think. Just the general idea that the kind of attention that this was receiving would be something that Paul would not want to be turned on him. And he wouldn't want people, for instance, looking in and trying to figure out who Satoshi was, you know? And that's exactly the time when he faded into the background and disappeared and no one's ever heard of him again, except these weird later emails that people have sort of debunked that probably weren't him. Right. Also, for people, well, if you want to look up this name, uh, I can just mention something quickly. This man, Polarux, built this empire that stretched across the whole world, started out with selling prescription drugs, then built up to actual drugs, and then built up to firearms as well. And there's all kinds of things, and he's running rampant in Africa, and of course, through corruption, intimidation. He was also extremely good at encryption, extremely good at coding, extremely good at covering his steps. So they were never actually, well, they weren't able to catch him for a long time. First of all, managed to bribe officials everywhere. And then, of course, it's to be expected that it's hard to uncover his actual identity. But, And he, he, he went so far... I mean, one of the things you know about Satoshi is that he's very careful. He or she uh, was very careful. And otherwise, we would have figured it out by now. Right. And, you know, Paul LaRue went to such extremes. You know, he didn't just sort of uh, try to use a safe email service. He built his own encrypted email service to communicate with his employees that the U.S. government never broke into. They never got access to it. He, once he was arrested and cooperating, he let them into it but it was also set to automatically erase. So they didn't even get everything that they wanted. So like, that's the extreme that you could imagine Satoshi going to, to protect his identity. There are similar extremes that, you know, were an everyday part of Paul Roo's life. Right. Another fun um, parallelism, if you would call it that, is that Satoshi had some somewhat of a beef with spam mails, right? He would actually quote the blockchain to be a tool to fight spam mail. And Polaru pretty much built his whole empire upon the base of the spam email, right? Of these Viagra emails. Yeah. I mean, he was a massive, massive spammer. <laughs> so that part, that's one of the things that doesn't really fit. Although he was sort of a man who contained multitudes, you know, he was the same guy who's ordering people murdered, you know, he was the guy who, he was very upset when he made his encryption software that this, the open source community didn't support him more. And he was very, he was very dedicated to the open source community at the beginning. And so this is a guy who's uh, maybe at some level is kind of like uh, anti-spam, uh, but at another level is using spam to build his business. You know, he's just a complicated person. So it's possible. It's a little bit weird that he'd be so anti-spam given how much spam he was doing. Well, that, that doesn't seem too crazy to me because we've all heard uh, at least the most popular conspiracy 
theories about like pharmaceutical companies. And this is like the first thing that came to my mind, but making up diseases in order to sell you the cure. Well, here you have the world's most prolific spammer <laughs> trying to sell you yeah. the cure for that. That doesn't seem too crazy to me when you're thinking about these like psychopathic types. Yeah. But any most prolific spammer probably doesn't like getting spam. <laughs> certainly not Viagra emails um, if you want we can come back to the Wikileaks thing so things get pretty agitated with Satoshi in the forums he starts trying to to break ties with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community upon Wikileaks announcing that they would be taking donations in Bitcoin just because he felt like this was gonna grant a lot of unwanted attention to the project that was still in its infancy so he might not have wanted just the scrutiny or even people trying to start finding out who he actually is he she them so what was polaru doing at the time uh so that was December, I was just looking it up. It's December 2010, I think, is the last forum post, uh, which is about WikiLeaks kicking the hornet's nest. And uh, for one thing, that's when Paul LaRue's business was kind of spiraling in a crazy way, which is he started murdering people. That's really the the end of 2010 was when he started just ordering people killed. And he had a list of people that he wanted killed. And things were getting pretty out of control uh, at that point. And the other thing is, as I mentioned before, this WikiLeaks release, which included information about this huge arms deal that he had done, it came out two weeks before that forum post. Two weeks prior, that WikiLeaks dump happened. Then he comes on the forum and says, I don't like this, this is kicking the horn's nest. It's again, it's like coincidence is not evidence, you know, but right. you them all up and you start to say, ah, what are the chances? You know, you can really get hooked on what are the chances. And they start, yeah, they start murdering. They start covering their steps. And in the meantime, I just, I, I didn't think of this originally, but this just reminded me. Uh, John McAfee, you must have heard of John McAfee, right? Right. So he's a pretty similar character to LaRue, or at least when it comes to being this uh, renegade, um, all, all, yeah, very much into all sorts of illegal substances, deals, people, <laughs> etc. And McAfee had said that he would be able to tell who Satoshi was. Of course, he has been known to lie as well as Craig Wright, right? Uh, but that people wouldn't want to know who he is, that it would have very negative repercussions into the community. You, you must if you're interested, you more likely will be able to find this on his Twitter account. And that, yeah, but that it was not like a very nice individual and it would be not very nice to the community to know this. So what did you imagine would go on if it actually, some piece of evidence would surface and people would learn it was actually polar root the whole time? Well, I think, I mean, partly, I think it is true. The people that we were talking about earlier that say it doesn't matter who it is. I think... I, I mean, this is, again, I'm not deep in the crypto community, but my, my surface impression is that that's, that's true in the sense they're talking about, which is I don't think it would collapse, you know, Bitcoin to find out that Paul LaRue was the person who invented it. It's, it's, it, is, it's, it is severed from the inventor in the sense that it is its own uh, entity now with its own life and it's not tied to that. On the other hand, if you have any market in which someone 
has the potential to move, I guess, you know, close to $60 billion maybe at certain points uh, in a single day. Um, you know, the market is big, so it's much bigger than it used to be. So who knows? But anyone who can move that much and then you find out that that person is an international criminal, I just think it is, if nothing else, perception-wise, it would have an impact. Like it's gonna affect the price in some way. If it was truly proven, which truly came out that it was proven that it was him. Because you're also, you know, you've got people who don't know that much about it, who already, and I've seen this in other court cases, you know, there's sometimes an assumption that Bitcoin's only used for illegal things or people have heard of Silk Road. You know, there's still, that's still out there. As big as it is now, that is still out there. So I think something that cemented that view, uh, it doesn't seem like a positive thing for the growth of Bitcoin to me, but what do I know? People might be excited. Right. And nowadays, you're right, with Grayscale and all these big financial institutions jumping into it, it has gained a legitimacy that it didn't have, right? I think we're way past the stages where something like this could break the whole thing down. And I'm not sure about this, but I'm sure people must have looked at the code deep enough to that they would have figured out already if there was something in there that would allow us a criminal potential criminal to have a backdoor in there to just steal the whole thing and this reminds me you have also quoted polarook with having mentioned about having talked about the importance of starting printing his own money right yeah i mean there's two there were sort of two uh quotes from sources of mine that that's that were pseudo evidence and one of them was him saying like the only way to really protect your money is to print your own like north korea he was obsessed with north korea a little bit and he was buying things out of north korea buying drugs out of north korea he tried to buy a submarine um so the idea of having your own currency and he having your own world uh he definitely talked about that and the other one was him he had all these programmers working for him in the philippines that he had basically imported from Romania, a lot of them. And they're working on all kinds of projects, many of them C++ programmers, I'd add. Uh, they're working on all kinds of projects, including drones, including missile technology for Iran, all kinds of crazy shit. And someone told me that he talked about having, talked about digital currencies with them. Now this is sort of, but the thing is, it's hard to judge because this was after it had already come out that there was a theory that Larry was Satoshi. So I'm talking to someone who's saying, oh yeah, I remember him saying that. And it's not a memory that I would totally trust. Like it's all, it, it could be just like prompted by all of this discussion. I don't know how well they remember it. So I didn't take it uh, definitive that he was talking about cr- cryptocurrencies there, but it would have been very early. It would have been, you know, 2008 that he was talking about it. And it, it does make sense. Well, if he's in the, cryptography community and he's thinking about building his whole printing his own money or why not print your own economic system and disrupt the whole world's economy in the, yeah. along the way his his style of you know of course there were a lot of people who tried to build digital currencies over the years and none of them quite worked out but there were a lot of ideas that were later incorporated into what Satoshi did, and, and LaRue had a similar approach when he built his encryption for the masses, you know, he reached out to some cryptographers and said, hey, I want to use your thing in this way. And it's similar to Satoshi sent these emails to like Wei Day and, and people saying, you know, I'm interested in this and I'm using it for this. 
And LaRue was sort of, he had a similar approach to how he was working on it. Now, a lot of people in the open source community have that approach. So again, in the pool of candidates of people who do open source software and know something about encryption and can code in C++, I don't know how big that pool is. It may be enormous. The, well, the writing style also seems to overall match like the two writing styles of from Polaru and Satoshi, although there are some difference, but what I got from your piece is that for the most part, it tends to, they tend to match each other, right? Yeah, it matches up pretty well. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the syntax and, and the word choice of Satoshi and it's sort of, there's a Britishisms, but there's also American, uh, American sounding language and, you know, that fits with LaRue too. He lived in the U.S. in some formative years in his early 20s. Um, he's from South Africa and Zimbabwe. He speaks, you know, this sort of like Queen's English uh, slash, uh, you know, South African. So he lived in London. Like he's got, he's a mix. And people would say, his his relatives would say, you sound American now. Like you sound like an American, like you're trying to sound American. And the, to other people, he sounded very South African or very Zimbabwean. So I think that that kind of uh, shifting fits well with the language. Um, the, he, it is a lot of writing. I mean, that's the one aspect that I, I'm not sure about. Like Paul used to post a lot online and he did write a lot in forums. Um, the volume of Satoshi, how much he contributed at the beginning, it's a little bit hard to square with Paul having time to do that just because he had a huge empire that he was running. But he also, he never slept. Like he was known for working all night and so I think it's certainly feasible that if he was dedicated to this project, he would have done that. And well, it has also been speculated Satoshi to be an organization, right? Because of the different things that don't match each other, sort of things where you can see that people sue them together. And it makes sense that if you're building something in complete secrecy, something like Bitcoin, that it would be clustered inside a criminal organization, right? That even these guys such as this mastermind would get people in there only for the sole purpose of this under his supervision. Have you ever considered something like this? Yeah, I consider that um, because he did have, like I said, he had these Romanian programmers working for him. So it seems plausible. Again, if you take your starting point, let's say it's him, that he had those guys building parts of it for him. So he wasn't actually doing it all himself. Because one of the things that did come out in his trial that he talked about was that he would have those guys build things that they didn't know what they were for. So they would build pieces of code that he said were for mining equipment and all kinds of other things that he would then adapt for missile technology and other things. So uh, it seems plausible there were people working on Bitcoin that didn't even know they were working on Bitcoin. I think the, the counter to that is that you would think they would figure it out now um, and, and reveal themselves potentially. But a lot of people, are, you know, they're scared of Paul LaRue. Like they don't want anything to do with it. So a lot of those Romanian programmers, I could never find them. They're ghosted. Like they return to Romania and they don't want to talk. So it's not like someone wants, if they don't have the Bitcoin, there's nothing in it for them to like step out and say, I was involved in creating it. Like that's only going to bring you uh, some pretty serious grief if you do it. Yeah. And that's another argument that people say about satoshi right like why would he want the attention attention of cashing out especially if he's like this brilliant mind he probably could have built another fortune somehow else and just get rid of all the trouble i 
there's been a lot of talk <laughs> in this conversation about missiles and about Iran. So could you elaborate? Because I'm sure more than one person was curious at this point. Um, what was the deals that he was doing with Iran? What was the missile technology that was being built? Sure. So it's basically, um, so the way that LaRue operated in some sense was that he wanted to get into anything that was sort of Uh, good money, good returns. So that's how he got into cocaine dealing, meth dealing. It was just really good returns relative to taking your fortune that you've earned in the online pill business and putting it into some conventional investment. So I think the arms sales was a little bit of the same thing. So what he would do was he would just send someone somewhere to try to figure out if he could do a deal. So he sent someone to Iran. I mean, this is by his own account, so it's very difficult to confirm. Sent someone to Iran. Uh, who eventually made contact with someone in the military uh, or defense intelligence, sold them an explosives formula that LaRue had come up with, a, a, a way to make a type of explosive, and then made a deal with them, sold them that. That was a kind of teaser. And then they were going to pay him, I can't remember, I think it was $5 million, might have been $10 million, uh, for missile guidance technology. So what they could use on their you know, ballistic missiles that like somewhere down the road, if they develop nuclear weapons, maybe they could put nuclear weapons on them. People kind of blow that up and say he was helping them design nuclear weapons and things like that, but it's ridiculous. Like it was missile guidance software. He never actually delivered it because he got caught uh, before he was able to deliver it back to them, what he, what he supposedly was going to provide. But that's what he had these, he hired these Romanian programmers to come to the Philippines and work on it. And he was also, he was building his own drones, underwater drones, air Uh, airplane drones, mostly for delivering drugs, but it seemed like some of that technology may also be was something he thought that he could sell if he if he was able to develop it. Well, I just realized that I didn't uh, I didn't talk about my favorite one, which again, it's not dispositive. But uh, when I, I I spent a long time trying to talk to cops in the Philippines about their pursuit of Larue. Uh, a lot of them had been bought off by LaRue. He, he paid bribes up and down the hierarchy of the police and the military police. Um, so it was tough to get anyone and know that they really were actually trying to investigate him as opposed to uh, trying to let him off, which a lot of them were. Um, but I finally found this guy who wouldn't let me use his name, but he had actually spent years trying to figure out what LaRue was up to He was told to stop by his superiors who were no doubt collecting payments from LaRue. Right. Um, kept at it. Uh, he tailed him. He tried to, you know, uh, he did surveillance on his house and he did surveillance on his beach house and all this sort of things. Um, and one of the things he told me that at the time, it didn't, it wasn't that meaningful to me, but came to back, back to me later. I don't even know if I put it in the article. Again, there's like lots of things that I didn't even put in the article. Um, was he said, one thing we couldn't figure out was how his house was using so much power. Like his house was using an unbelievable amount of power. We just couldn't, like, we couldn't understand what it could be for. Like how many computers could he be running that could possibly use this much power inside the house? And later, of course, if you think about it, You think about Satoshi being the original miner. He's mining the first Bitcoins, probably on his own servers, you know, that he's set up and he's running, you know, maybe he could rent space to do that or whatever. But that just really stood out to me when I considered it later. Like the idea that, 
maybe what he was doing in that house that he never came out of uh, in Manila was just mining Bitcoin. <laughs> and there's a lot of little things like that, that you just sort of, they just, they kind of bubble up and then they go away and you forget about them. And then you stumble across them again and suddenly they seem very relevant. So that's like the process of trying to solve a mystery like this. Right. Um, not only is he mining Bitcoins because mining Bitcoins back in the day wouldn't consume that much energy. You could do that in any personal computer. Just I could be mining back in the day. I would be able to be having this conversation with you and mining Bitcoin in the background just in my laptop because it wouldn't consume so much power. But let's also, yeah, for everyone that was thinking about this objection, I, I would also want to keep in mind that he's not only mining Bitcoin, he's like, creating the system to mine Bitcoin and he's maybe running the first prototypes and everything. So it would actually consume a lot of power if you're just trying to determine how much power you need to consume in order to create this and make this system feasible. So yeah, yeah that's a very interesting one, man. What else, uh, what else did you learn from these cups? I mean, you make a good, good, uh, good point, which, it's like the original, I think the original Bitcoin wouldn't have cost them that much power at the, at the very beginning, 2008. But this is sort of anywhere in the range from 2008 to 2000 and end of 2011 or so. So just the idea that he might be like adding computers all the time. And, and really it wasn't to make his his online prescription business work because that they, they did rent racks of servers in Canada and all over the place to do that sort of process. And he didn't do that from his house. Um, so what was he doing in his house? Cause he mostly just worked on a laptop himself. Like he had one old beat up laptop that he'd fully secured with his own software to make sure that no one could ever get inside of it. So there's that one. And then um, the other one, which again is just a, it's just like fun is that one of the things that Paul did was he wanted to start an online poker business before he started the pill business or while he was starting the pill business, he wanted to start an online poker business. And there's this very strange aspect of the original Bitcoin code where there's a little poker engine built into the code. And no one has ever explained that other than a sort of vague idea that, well, whoever Satoshi was, maybe he thought, you know, poker would be a good way to, uh, use Bitcoin, like for online gambling, like maybe that was a sort of use case that he'd come up with at the beginning and then they discarded it later and it kind of fell out of the code. But here you have someone who's has past history of being interested in building an online poker business and has actually built part of it, uh, as far as I understand. So like the idea that there's a little bit of code in there, again, uh, not proof, but very, very interesting. There's a... This goes back to the sort of category of things that you cannot be making up, right? Because it's just like little pieces here and there that form this big, uh, not solid, but compelling case for for LaRue. And I, I wanted to ask you personally, like in a more personal question, what has your life been like? Because as we mentioned before, you've pretty much tied yourself to this criminal name <laughs> forever. And you spent all this time like re reflecting on it and looking for more information and talking to people about him. How has this, uh, what impact has trailing this criminal through the world has had into your own life? Well, I mean, for a while, when I was in the middle of it, a lot of it was, it was just, uh, I could never turn off because what I was trying to do was get the most amount of people who were involved in this organization to talk to me. 
which meant, and a lot of them were overseas in different time zones. And so I would uh, wake up in the morning and I would have 50 or a hundred WhatsApp messages from a guy who is a contract military guy who was working in, now he's working in Iraq or something. And he was telling me about his time with LaRue. And so it was sort of this constant, like there was no turning it off because basically 24 hours a day at some level, I was in touch with these people and they were all scared and I was trying to protect their identity. So it was, it was kind of all consuming during that. And, it, and even afterwards, then when the book came out, there was a lot more of that because there were people who were very angry about they weren't in the book or they were mad at me because this guy was in the book and they, and he was portrayed in a certain way and they were portrayed in a certain way. And so uh, I was just dealing with a lot of people who are tricky characters, let's say. Um, but that's now that it's a couple years out, that's, that's less so. Um, and I think overall the effect on me, which I, I knew from other reporting, but I just talked to a lot of people who, if you looked at the story without really digging into it, you would say, oh, wow, those people are criminals. And I think a lot of people just view them that way. But there were so many people who they just took sort of one step down a road, sort of broke one moral boundary, and then they got wrapped up in something that was they were in over their heads and they couldn't get out of it. And they were as baffled as anyone at how they'd end up, ended up international criminals when they'd started just sort of taking a job at a, at a call center, you know? And so it really... Uh, I don't know, my, it did change my outlook in terms of looking, uh, when you look at a case uh, of anyone who ends up committing a crime and then you sort of dig in and you find the story behind it and, and the reasons behind it. It's not to excuse any of it, but uh, it's always more interesting than you think. And there's always something deeper there than what you're getting when the press release from the Justice Department comes out saying these people are terrible. That, that gets me thinking, what's the process like of, extracting yourself from all these connections all these people yeah because if you're pretty much 24 hours a day trailing behind polaru yeah then you have to extract yourself right how do you how, how did you manage to do that i mean some of some people you know stop talking to me because they they sort of realize that there's some way that you can't avoid that it's that it's been transactional you know i was trying to get information for them for the book and the book's done and so Uh, it may have seemed like we were friends because I was talking to them all the time and asking them very personal questions about their past. And that's a strange thing to sever. Some of them would sever it on their own. And then some of them, I sort of gradually stopped talking to them. There's some of them that I still talk to pretty regularly, you know, that people who uh, I, I'm not friends with per se, but I, I have this connection with them and they're still, there's still things going on with Paul LaRue. So uh I still do reporting on it. They still want to know what's happening. So members of his family will contact me and say, you know, where is he now? Where's he being held? What's going on? I've read this news story that says this. And so some of it, I don't know how long that'll last, you know, for our lifetimes, but uh, some of the connections do, do continue and other ones sort of naturally kind of fade away. And then there were a few real hardcore mercenary types that I sort of, I just, I couldn't deal with them anymore. Like, I don't know. They were threatening me and I just sort of said, vaguely threatened me. And I just sort of said, I don't need to talk to these people anymore. There is a, well, there's one quote that stood up to me when you were actually asking one of these guys that was trying to get implicated again, wanted to run things in Le Rux's empire again. And 
you were asking him if he was uh, scared of someone trying to kill him because people would kill for no reason. <laughs> and the answer that he gives you is, yeah, yeah, but that goes both ways. <laughs> so that, that really, yeah, that really tells you the type of people you're dealing with here. Yes. Well, at the end of that story is that person is on trial for murder in the Philippines. Like that guy that <laughs> now accused of murdering someone. So he definitely carried out his, uh, his philosophy of that goes both ways. Yeah, like <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at this, but yeah, it did go both ways in the end. Yeah, and that guy's really interesting because what he claimed he was going to Manila to do was crypto-related business on behalf of Paul Larue. And, you know, some people think he was there looking for the keys. You know, he's looking for... Paul's got... If he's Satoshi, has got those keys somewhere and uh, maybe someone could find him. So I think a lot of people are are interested in uh, finding him if it's him. Do you know what crypto-related business this was? No, I don't, because he got he got arrested. I mean, the murder was not related. It was a really sad story. It was a, a woman who was the girlfriend of a guy that they were both there working on this, supposedly working on this crypto project. So I don't. they didn't get far enough to actually do anything, as far as I know. I'm not even sure what they were doing. And he says it was on behalf of Paul. Uh, he definitely was imprisoned with Paul, so... They had a relationship, so it seems like he was sent there or he went there to do something on Paul's behalf. He had contacted me because he was looking for Paul's wife slash girlfriend, and could I help him find her, which I couldn't. Um, so there's just a lot of uh, very strange aspects to it. But again, because it has to do with crypto, it makes you wonder, what's going on there? Like, right. why did I go to the Philippines, who was in prison with Paul, looking to do something in crypto? Like, I don't know. Uh, speaking about crypto and criminals and so on so on nowadays people in the dark nets were informed has uh have stopped using bitcoin altogether because it seems like it's, it's basically too transparent right and that's one of the main criticisms of bitcoin by the privacy community and by the people that don't want the government looking up at their transactions, which is pretty much everyone that uses crypto nowadays, right? Or ever. So do you think this weakens the case for Polar Ruby Satoshi that he built something that could so easily be traced back to, to people? Um, maybe. I don't know if, if, um, if you sort of look at when he would have made it and then uh, what happened after that. I'm not sure that whoever Satoshi was, they could have predicted where we sort of ended up. I mean, part of the reason why it's such a bad idea to use it for, for criminal acts, I mean, part of it's related to the transparency that's inherent in blockchain technology. Uh, that's how the technology works, you know, is, is you have to, I mean, you don't have to have that there are these privacy coins and things like that, but like that was a fundamental idea of it. And part of it is just the exchanges. Like you can't really get on an exchange now without, you know, know your customer laws and, you know, that's just become, and I'm not sure that that part could have been foreseen. I think you could imagine a Satoshi who believed that there would be totally independent exchanges that were outside of the realm of government, or there would be, everyone would be using Bitcoin to buy things you would never have to exchange in the first place. So I think it's possible that whether it's LaRue or someone else, this sort of where we've arrived at now, which is like, it's privacy wise, as you say, it's like, a very dubious uh, 
endeavor. Although it's still like I'm doing another story in which it's been, it's been used by criminals. Of course, they got they got caught, but um, it still is is in use for sure. It still has its use if you recognize that it's not anonymous in the way that you're thinking of. Uh, it can be used, but yeah, I think I think it's a little bit. If if Paul's goal, if he's Satoshi and his goal was to build this uh, this completely private uh, currency, you know, like North Korea, uh, they, he, that was not accomplished, for sure. Um, yeah, North Korea has come up a lot on the on the article and the book and on this famous quote that we should build our own money, which would print our own money, like the North Koreans. Uh, what's the status on the North Korean currency? I have no idea. <laughs> or is, yeah, what's, why, why is that the example? Oh, I, I don't know why that, I mean, I think it's just because it's a closed society, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a dictatorship and a closed economy. Um, okay. So I think, I think it was, just the idea of like it's completely outside of the realm of the banking system and i think that's what he was thinking like it's better to have your own than to be connected to this banking system in which everything is traceable again as we say like this this has now happened with bitcoin a lot of things are traceable but i think the idea was uh you could really uh that's the only way you could avoid because he was always getting getting flagged you know he's moving tens of millions of dollars through banks in hong kong and it's getting flagged and it's getting confiscated at different times. You know, they weren't that tight on it, but it, it definitely, he lost money in that way. And he's always trying to figure out ways to launder money. Uh, and it's tricky. And also, you know, he had bought some of the world's most pure methamphetamine out of North Korea. So he was kind of like into the idea that in North Korea, you can do whatever you want. You can create, you can manufacture the world's most pure methamphetamine and then uh, sell it around the world. So I think it was more... Uh, conceptual well i'm sure lots of people wouldn't agree with that in north korea you can do whatever you want but yeah as it comes to criminals uh criminal with, activity with government approval the the, right. the method operating they were uh government approved it wasn't like i don't think the idea was that people were like under the radar doing whatever they wanted it was more like it was a way that the north korean government earned hard currency where they otherwise couldn't was by selling drugs that they manufactured yeah, that, that, that's what I wanted to ask you. Do you do you think? Of course, they must be implied in a lot of, uh, well, in a lot of operations. I, I'm curious now why they didn't get into crypto yet, or if they have and we just haven't heard about it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what their what their uh, involvement is. Yeah, you would think it, it would be a good place to to try to uh, make some money if you're otherwise severed from the world economy. Because Venezuela has, Venezuela has like tried to issue their own cryptocurrency and that turned into a whole hot mess. Yeah. Right. I wanted to ask you, what is, uh, what is known or what do you know about Paul Leroux currently nowadays? What is he? Well, of course he's locked up, but, <laughs> but what was the status of his whole existence? He's, um, so he was sentenced uh, last summer, I guess, or the summer before, losing track of time in the pandemic, but no, it was the summer before last, um, to 25 years in federal prison in the U.S. on a variety of charges. Uh, he'd served, he'd been in custody for seven or eight, so that'll knock off his sentence. So he's got, you know, 18 years or something like that. Um, you know, he's still held here in Brooklyn at the moment. He's not been sent to a permanent facility, and it's not clear 
he may require some witness protection because he also has testified in a murder case against uh, his own uh, underlings. So, um, you know, unless something very strange happens, he'll be serving a lot of time here. And then at the end of that, probably extradited slash deported to the Philippines where they also want to prosecute him on a number of murders. Um, so chances are he'll be, he'll be locked up for, for some time. The, um, okay. He got arrested in the U S in under the charges of murder, right? Well, he, he wasn't arrested for murder. Uh, he was actually arrested just for drug trafficking in a sting operation. So he's, he's arrested for cocaine and methamphetamine trafficking, uh, also for selling the technology to Iran. That was part of his charges. The murders they found out from him after he was arrested to a certain extent. Like he started cooperating. So as part okay. of his cooperation, he, you must tell us every crime you've committed. And he said, well, I murdered this person and this person. Uh, and that's part, of the, that's part of the deal. And why did this happen in the U.S. and not in the Philippines where he lived? Uh, mainly because uh, in the Philippines, he had uh, bought his way out of really any consequences from the Philippine government. And uh, the U.S. DEA is really the only organization that has the reach and the resources and the desire to go after someone like this who's on the other side of the world. I mean, he was on the Australian authorities' radar. I think he was on the U.K. authorities' radar a little bit, but... They just don't, they're not going around the world scooping these people up in the way that the DEA has the power to do. Uh, so, you know, he had even moved out of the Philippines, he moved to Brazil, and then they ran a whole elaborate sting operation to lure him to Liberia, where he was arrested. And only the DEA can really, uh, care, you know, pull that off. So I'd like to also, to start wrapping things up, ask you, what are you doing nowadays? But before on... Before you tell me that, and sort of to close the the Polaroo book, you've uh, well one of the most interesting things is that you've quoted that everyone around him would kind of agree that he would only do this like to prove that he could, that there was no really big reason behind all his acts. How would you, yeah? What what do you have to say about this? What did you get to learn about his psychology? Yeah, it was difficult to to really try to tease apart why why he did all all the things that he did. Um, there's a very you know sort of uh, cliche, typical criminal situation in which you say if he had been he had dedicated his life to legitimate business in the same way that he dedicated his life to illegitimate business, he still would have been he probably would have had a startup and it would have been rich and. He could have made tons of money. I mean, he's in the same mold as an Elon Musk, as a Mark Zuckerberg, brilliant technical mind. In the end, a brilliant business mind, built a huge business worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It just happened to be illegal. <laughs> Good networker. <laughs> yeah, he's, he really like has all of those skills. And I think partly when I look at his psychology, I actually look to those examples because I feel like you can ask, well, what is Mark Zuckerberg doing? Like, what does he want now? I mean, he built this enormous company that is influential throughout the world. He's made more money than you could ever spend in your life. What does he want now? Why doesn't he quit? And I think the answer is a drive to build, a drive to make things bigger, a drive to be influential, to not give up your power. And I think Paul LaRue was the same way. You know, he built this, this company and then it's compounded by the fact that you're in bed with people who 
you can't just quit. You know, you can't just say, oh, sorry, we're not going to do that cocaine deal anymore because those people will come and kill you. So there is a kind of spiral that I think he maybe got caught up in uh, on top of that. But I think the psychology is less to me, less that he's some sort of psychopath, sociopath who from the beginning was just out to amass power and murder people. It's like someone who really wanted to be successful and wanted to use his technical skills to be successful and then could never turn that off. And it went haywire in really terrible, tragic ways. You would be able to say similar things about, like you said, anyone that has a big drive to be to make things better, to keep uh, putting themselves in positions of power, right? Most people... And of course, I would include myself in this list. We don't have the drive to to continue to grow in things or we sort of have a sense of where is it big enough or good enough or just a tendency to look for relaxation. Did you manage to learn anything about what drives people to to continue on this path of bigger, bigger, better, faster, stronger, or is it just an innate, type of thing I think it's I think it's a little bit innate I mean I think you can attribute some parts of it to greed I mean there's definitely a, a monetary motivation Paul Rue wanted to be wealthy he wanted to make more and more money he talked about money he loved seeing stacks of you know hundreds of thousands of dollars and things like that people people told me that um, and part of it is just just ego you know he he had told LaRue had told someone at one point that I want to be the biggest criminal that ever was. Like when they, when they arrest me, I'm going to be on CNN. And indeed, when they arrested him, he was on CNN. It kind of came out later because they didn't, they didn't release it when he was originally arrested. But like when his henchman was arrested, it was on CNN. So I think there's just a, a little bit of an innate drive uh, that some people have towards success. And then other things, there are other factors in his life, how he grew up, you know, his home growing up, his, his falling in love with computers, you know, there's all these things that are kind of a swirl that end up pushing someone to kind of never stop to, to just keep, keep, uh, keep pressing on no matter how big it gets or convoluted it gets, or in his case, dangerous, uh, it gets. And more than one must be wondering, and to use the wording that this community uses, when when Netflix, <laughs> when, when are we seeing the show? Oh, <laughs> um, there is a thing, there is a show in development. Um, it did take a long time, particularly this sort of situation where you have a very big elaborate story that uh, would have to be filmed all over the world. So I, I don't know if it'll ever come to pass, but people are working on it. That's been announced. It's like it's at Amazon, uh, Amazon Studios and stuff. So it, it exists as a uh, conceptually. All right, man. So look, it's been great talking to you. It's great learning about all this from the person that knows the most about this. What are you working on nowadays? What's uh, what's the next big project? What are you doing both at days and at night? Uh, I'm working on a couple magazine stories that are in its somewhat similar vein uh, about. Uh, one's about a scammer and the other one's about sort of uh, manipulated identity online. Um, so I kind of said at the end of the book, maybe I'll do something else and go back to doing some other stories, but it turns out it's easiest for me to move on to like the next level crime story. So that's what I'm up to at the moment. 
All right, man. So if people want to learn more about your work, if people want to see more of you, of course, they must be ordering the book already. But what else would you recommend them to do? Yeah, also, if they want to get in touch. Yeah, they could just look up the mastermind, find it online. You can look me up on Twitter. I'm there. My personal website is linked. My email's there. If people have amazing stories that they want to send me that are like this, that they think I should do, my Proton Mail's on there. You can DM me for my signal. Uh, I love tips. So send me great stories. If, um, if there's anything else that you'd like to add to both your story, your background, anything that you think we missed in this interview? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm, I really hope that someone figures out who Satoshi is. I feel like it's one of the most interesting modern mysteries and I don't ultimately think it's going to be LaRue. Um, but I feel like sometime some evidence is going to emerge that is going to be definitive and it's going to be really, really interesting. We all want to know, like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to die without knowing this and I want you to be right. <laughs> I, I want it to be LaRue. Okay? I want to see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Evan. Thank you very much for doing this. It was great to meet you. We'll hope to have you around some other time. All right. Will do. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.